Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna. We're just three gals who like to sit around, drink coffee, and talk about true crime. Oh, you're going to say talk about tremors. <laughs> talk about tremors. I do like to talk tremors. about tremors. Rocks. Amazing. With Kevin Bacon. All Fred seven Ward. of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah I I, you know, I have not seen all seven. Oh. Yeah, my fiance and I can't start a series without watching all of, all them. of them. So we watched all of them. Yeah. That's it's worth it. And they get more and more epic. If something um like does something like that, like if it like destroys a town or anything like that, is that would you consider that a true crime? Even though it's like, not true. Or you mean it like is tremors. in their world? Oh yeah. sure, okay. In saying. the world like, of if tremors. If we're in the world of tremors, or like um like I mean I guess this does but come up. Aren't they like, aliens? No, I think they're from they're from the earth they're or sand, something. They're like sand they're, snake kind of look oh, kind well, of sort of thing. Then, it's like beetle then juice. aren't we the ones that committed the crime by building on their their like home? Do you think they have uh, a court? Maybe. I think we court is just murder. Court of the ass blasters. Yeah. <laughs> it's court yes. of I'm just gonna eat you and you're gonna deal. God, with I that. really need to rewatch and then watch the, the rest of these movies. The ass blasters are like in the third. One. I don't like, remember you, any. You gotta of them. watch. Yeah, I gotta. Uh, I have to. Okay. Duly long noticed. after okay. I will. I will. Been re- there. <laughs> yep. I will rewatch Tremors. I'm so sorry I thought they were aliens. I will rewatch Beans. and I'll watch the rest of them. Beans. I apologize. Beans. We're gonna watch Tremors. We're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna drink coffee. We're gonna talk about true crime. We're gonna talk about true crime. That's what we're gonna do today. <laughs> Not talking about Tremors anymore. Oh, okay. So, ladies, ladies, ladies. Beans, beans, beans. Today's tale is one that I think most of you may know. Our wonderful bean, Chloe, recommended this one. It was already on my list, so it moved up higher because um, she recommended it. It is another terrible, terrible story that uh, should have gone a lot differently. Police reporter Joel Cummings, when he walked in and saw the sole survivor, asked what was going on, and the officer said that he was trying to help her keep her sanity. And Jim said, sanity? That girl will never be the same again. And with that, have you ever heard of Richard Speck? Yeah? Mm-hmm. I bet you have. Richard Speck, who was linked to four random murders before he massacred eight nursing students in their Chicago rooming home, does end up dying in prison on December 5th, 1991, just one day before his 50th birthday. Get comfy, my lovely beanie babies. This is not a happy story. Haha, <laughs> 49. Sorry. <laughs> just, I don't know. 49. Maybe that was a goal. Maybe a goal of his was to reach 50, it, and I hope he didn't make it. What? I mean, I don't think he like, cared, to be honest. He didn't uh, care. Richard Franklin Speck was born on December 6, 1941, in Kirkwood, Illinois. He had seven brothers and sisters. His father died when he was only six years old. He loved his father, and this devastated the young Speck. Until his mother remarried, his family home was very religious. Strict rules, no booze, etc. Then his mom met and married Carl Lindbergh. He was a gem of a human who had a negative history with the police and a bad relationship with alcohol. So Speck spent most of his younger years in Dallas, Texas, which is why he ends up having such a strong southern drawl. Carl would beat Speck in drunken fits of rage, 
outside of the routine beatings, Speck also suffered a head injury when he fell out of a tree, clearly being set up for success by his family. It must have been such a shock to everyone when Speck failed just about everything in school. He started to hang out with boys much older than himself and got into his own violent habits, drinking, fighting, and even starting to use sex as a way to get things he needed and to survive. He started drinking when he was 12 years old, and he was drunk most of the time. His first arrest was when he was only 13 years old. It was for trespassing. Many, many arrests followed that. Later, he had a very short and violent-based marriage, during which he had a kid and was thrown in prison. His wife at the time, Shirley, who was only about 16 years old when they got married, mind you, claimed that his lust for sex was so great that he needed it from her four or five times a day, and he would take it whether she was willing or not. She filed for divorce in early 1966, and it was actually six months before the massacre on 2319 East 100th Street in Chicago. In 1966, Richard was also involved in a burglary and a stabbing. He was fined a whopping $10 for them. For stabbing a guy? He was <laughs> he was fined a whopping $10 for one of them. Do you know which one? Was it for stabbing a guy? <laughs> it was. <laughs> you can pay $10 and stab a guy back then? Well, he was fined $10, yeah. Cool. Well, but that's the thing is you essentially are like, here's $10. Here's $10. I'm going to go stab this guy. Oh, my God, <laughs> Or like, I know. you're like... You know, you save up money oh my from, God, like, your allowance, yeah. and you go, like, I wonder if, like, billionaires oh, think that way, where they're like, Bobby. I'll just get a, I mean, I'll just get a part I mean, aren't yes. there people who Little hunt Bobby, humans what are you for saving sport? your allowance for? Yeah. You know what I want to do this week, Mommy? I want to stab a guy. With a, a knife! <laughs> no! <laughs> I mean, aren't there, isn't, are there so, so many stories of, like, people hunting humans? Anyways. Well, uh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's very that's like much, that reminds me of, like, how I wish there was a base, uh, a wage-based um, ticketing system for stuff because then people that have like all this money will be like I don't pff, I don't care if I broke the law driving I don't give a shit I'll just pay this off because I can afford it like whatever There's like books and movies like that yeah three hundred dollars for me is nothing like <laughs> yeah uh but but he was sent back to prison for the burglary oh good or at least it he would have. Um, with the help of his sister Carolyn, he was able to hop the first bus out of there and went to be with his other sister Martha in Chicago. I get the family's important all, but like, I don't know. Come on. If they hadn't have done that, those nursing students would have not had such a terrible ending. They would have gone on to do incredible things. And I'm not blaming his sisters by any means because there's no way they could have known what was going to happen. It's just like... Mm-hmm. It just sucks. It just really, really sucks. It would have been a total game changer if he would have been put in prison. So he gets to Chicago and only stays there for a few days. He ventures over to Mammoth, Illinois. Did I say that right, Amanda? I literally wrote, did I say that right, Amanda? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'd say that Monmouth. But, Monmouth. But I don't actually know. Mon- oh, I'll be honest. I didn't look it I've up ne- because you're from Illinois. Well, and I'm from, well, I'm from Chicago. There's Chicago. Chicago. And then there's Southern Illinois. Okay, sure, And sure, that sure. sounds like a Southern Illinois place I think to it me. is. It probably is. I'm sure it is. Um, what, Monmouth? Monmouth. Monmouth? Monmouth? Probably. Monmouth? Listen. Monmouth. Leave them uh, all in. I went Take to school in a place that's second to last in education. So. Me too. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> that's why I asked Amanda first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mama is actually where he spent his early, early years before his mom remarried and moved the family. He even still had some family friends there that he stayed with. I feel like he did um, attempt to turn his life around. It said he started, like, working as a carpenter 
for like a month. And then he gave up and quit because he loved the bottle more. Uh, he decided that his days were better spent drinking at the local bar. Palace Tap was reportedly his favorite one. He loved to talk about himself and brag about this and that. He once told the bartender, Jane Boone, that he killed his ex-wife's husband back in Dallas. Nothing came of that, though. Sticking to old violent habits and also taking things to another awful level, Speck escalated. Ladies and beans, make sure your coffee is just how you like it, because here come the murders. On April 2nd, 1966, a Miss Virgil Harris was brutally attacked in her house. She was 65 years old and was attacked from behind with a knife to her throat. A man with a very distinct southern accent told her not to make a noise. She had a house coat on, and he began to cut it into strips. He then tied her up with it and raped her. Things only got worse just about a week later on April 13th. A bartender from Frank's place, Mary Kay Pierce, was found in a hog house just behind the bar. She had been horrifically attacked. She had been hit in her stomach so hard that her liver actually ruptured. Speck was a person of interest as he frequented the bars and had a southern accent, loosely tying him to the two crimes. He was briefly questioned, used his charm and wit, and also suddenly became ill during the interview. He said he would return in a few days to continue once he was better. But guess what, ladies and beans? He never showed. No. No. Big surprise there. The police were able to trace his former whereabouts to a hotel called the Christie Hotel. Inside his room, they found jewelry and a radio from Mrs. Harris's house, along with a bunch of other items linked to other burglaries. The hotel manager said that Speck had left a while ago. He had a suitcase and claimed he was going to the laundromat. But of course, he hopped on the first bus out of there. And then three months later, one of the most horrific and terrifying mass murders took place. Now, Speck is back in Chicago with his sister Martha and her husband Gene Thornton and their two teenage daughters. Martha was actually a registered nurse, and her husband was a former U.S. Navy and now worked as a railroad switchman. Speck, of course, told them a false story about why he had to leave Mammoth. Mammoth? What do we say? Mammoth? Mammoth? Monmouth? Leave Monmouth. He had been approached to sell drugs for a crime syndicate, and he just had to escape. Gene wanted to help out Speck and thought maybe the U.S. Merchant Marine might be able to hook Speck up with some work. So the two gents went down to the U.S. Coast Guard office so that Speck could apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. Some of the things required for this application are fingerprints, photographs, and a physical exam. Speck did it all. He actually found work right away. It was to join a crew of 33 on a very large ship. He only lasted a short time, though, because he got appendicitis and had to be evacuated by helicopter. Uh -uh. (laughs) Oops. Speck went back to living with his sister and her family until he was well enough to get back onto the ship. But this time he was kicked out for drinking and fighting with one of the officers. Oops. This time, though, he stayed with a nurse he met while he was at the hospital for appendicitis. She was a nurse's aide who was only 28 years old and was going through a divorce named Judy. She ended up giving Speck $80 to help him get back on his feet. He then went back to stay with his sister. About two weeks later, Speck and Jean go to the National Maritime Union Hiring Hall at 2335 East 100th Street. Speck was filing his paperwork for a Siemens card. This area was only one block east of this neighborhood of six attached two-story townhomes. Three 
were home to senior nursing students and Filipino exchange registered nurses of Southern College Community Hospital. One of those townhomes was 2319 East 100th Street. It was only 150 feet from the National Maritime Union Hall. It was about a week later on July 8, 1966, when the two men went back to pick up Speck's card. Speck also registered to start working on a ship, but he had no luck because of his super low seniority. Back to his sister's place he went. July 11th rolls by, and Speck has super overstayed his welcome. To give you a better picture, he actually arrived at his sister's on April 19, 1966. It is now July 8th. 1966. Mm. Um, Speck packed his bags and was taken to the NMU hiring hall. Makes me laugh because it's also my initials. Uh, (laughs) um, Hoping to get work on a ship. Gene left him there and went back to the family apartment. Speck stayed at a rooming house about a mile away, and the next morning he went back to the hiring hall. He got an assignment. It was about mid-afternoon when he received work for a tanker. However, when he arrived, his spot was already filled. They had overhired on purpose because I guess it wasn't uncommon for folks not to show up because of drinking or getting distracted, whatever, I don't know. Um, Back he went to the hiring hall, but now he had no money to stay at a rooming house, so he ended up dropping his bags at a Marin Shell gas station, found an unfinished house, and slept there. The next day, which was Wednesday, July 13th, his sister and her husband, Jean, drove down to check on him. They met him at the hiring hall, and Speck went off about how upset he was about the whole situation with a non-existent job. He went off for 30 minutes. Then Martha gave him $25, and her and her husband left Speck. He walked about a mile and a half to another rooming house at a shipyard inn. He spent the rest of the day drinking away his sorrows. Then he held Ella May Hopper at knife point, took her back to his room at the inn, and raped her. Oh. He also stole her gun. He then basically tossed her back out and went to dinner. After he ate, he went back to his room at the inn and drank more. Then, at 10.20 p.m., dressed in all black, took his pocket knife, hunting knife, and the newly stolen revolver, and went for a walk. He walked for about a mile and a half until he reached 2319 East 100th Street. As I move into the story of the nurses, I just want to say that what took place in their rooming house is graphic and utterly heartbreaking. And if you need to skip ahead to the end, that is completely understandable. Sometimes it's just not the day to hear horrible true crime cases, and we totally get that. And as always, we support you in your mental health. With that, the morning of July 14th, 1966 would be a day that shook Chicago forever. Gloria Davy, who was 22, Patricia Matusak, who was 20, Nina Shamale, who was 24, Pamela Wilkening, 20, Susan Ferris, 21, Marianne Jordan, 20, Marlita Gargulo, 22, and Valencia Pazon, who was 23, were all nursing students from South Chicago Community Hospital with their whole lives ahead of them until Richard Speck walked into their townhouse. It was about 11.30 p.m. when Speck broke into their home. He raped and brutally tortured and murdered eight young nursing students. He later claimed that he was drunk and high and only wanted to do a routine robbery. What is about to follow is no routine robbery. There was one survivor from this horrible night, Cora Amareo. In the early hours of July 14th, their neighbor, Judy Dykton, was studying for a neurology exam when she heard what sounded like cries of an animal. At first, she ignored it and went on to do laundry she wanted to get done so that she could really focus on her studying. Then she heard that same animal crying again. She started to think maybe it was a child in the neighborhood, 
Judy got up and opened the window to look around. What she saw was far beyond what she was prepared for. She saw Cora on the ledge of her two-story home crying and saying, oh my god, they are all dead. Judy ran over to Cora. She was still in the window ledge crying and shaking. Judy went inside the house and instantly saw the motionless body of Gloria. She was naked with her hands tied behind her, professional knots that were so tight on her delicate wrists that her skin had begun to puff over the ties. Her body was in a way that her head was slightly off the couch and her skin had taken this pale blue color. Judy did not take one more step inside. She ran to the house mother's home. She started yelling, there's trouble in 19. The house mother woke up and woke up the other students in her house. They all ran over to the home. At this time, Cora jumped down from the ledge, 10 feet, and proceeded to stand on the front of the stairs that led to the house. She pleaded for them not to go inside, that everyone was dead and the killer might still be there. One of the girls now on the scene was named Leona. She went up to Gloria and touched her and said, Davy, hoping that Gloria would show some sign of life, but she remained motionless. Leona went upstairs and found another of her classmates dead in the bathroom, and the other girls were in the other two bedrooms down the hall. They were covered with so much blood that she couldn't recognize them, except for Nina. Nina had a pillow covering most of her face, and she was laying on her back with her arms tied and her legs open, cloth wound so tight around her neck and stabbed. She slowly went back downstairs in shock from the massacre. She told the house mother not to go up there and that everyone was dead. So the house mother grabbed the phone and called the South Chicago Community Hospital and told them that all her girls had been killed. When they asked her to give them names, she couldn't because some of the girls were unrecognizable. All she was able to say was, I need help. A patrolman named Daniel Kelly was in the area. He had only been working as a patrolman for about 18 months, so he was super fresh on the scene still. He was called over by someone at the scene, and he radioed that there was trouble. Then he went inside. Not only is this a horrible sight, but he actually knew Gloria. He used to date her sister. I cannot imagine what that must have been like. You're brand new. You already know you're going to walk into something horrible, and you know the victim? How incredibly heartbreaking. He was very upset and instantly drew his gun and began searching the house. He found no murderer, just bodies of the seven other girls. He ran back to his car and radioed again. Help, help, help. Oh my God, I dated her sister. Oh my God, I've never seen nothing like this. Oh, give me the sergeant. Give me my lieutenant. Oh God. A man named Joe Cummings, WCFL radio police reporter, heard the call. He had been driving around checking out other calls that had turned out to be nothing. But in his bones, he knew that this one was going to be big. It took Daniel a moment to radio the address, but when he finally did, Joe headed right over there. He arrived on the scene to find Daniel completely disheveled and walking in circles. He walked up to Daniel and told him that he was a police reporter and asked what happened. Daniel just said, it's a homicide. Joe told him he was going to go in and he wouldn't touch anything. He only walks into the living room and sees Gloria's body. He comes back out and acts like it's just routine. Say, you've got a homicide in the living room. Not understanding why Daniel was so upset, Daniel just says, go upstairs. Once Joe does, his tone changed. He saw the bodies of all the women and a handprint in blood on the bedroom door. Once he was back outside, he vomited. At that time, he noticed this alarm almost sound. He asked Daniel what that was, and he says, the survivor. Cora's account of what happened is heartbreaking. She told her side of what happened later in court, and this is what she said. 
I want to make mention that in each of the bedrooms, there's um, bunk beds because the girls all shared rooms. And I uh, found some pictures, too, so the, of the bedrooms so you can see them on, on our, our Instagram or website. Um, but it's important to have that visual because of how Cora hides. Um, so she, she heard four knocks on the door of her bedroom. She, of her bedroom, first of all. Four knocks on her bedroom door. She opened it and saw Speck, very tall and in all black. He was standing in the door with a small revolver in his hand. The light from her room showed his blonde hair. She stared at the gun. He pushed her back. He asked her where her companions were and grabbed her arm. Merlita had gotten out of bed now, and he walked them both to the large room at the end of the hall. Inside, three other housemates were asleep. When he was looking at the other women, Cora, Merlita, and Valentina hid in the closet. A moment later, another roommate knocked on the door of the closet and asked them to come out, that the man wouldn't hurt them. So they did. It, of course, was a lie. Speck pointed the gun at Nina and Pat while he was holding Pamela by the waist. He turned off the lights and made the women all sit in a semicircle with their backs to the window in the room. He sat facing them and smiling. In his deep southern drawl, he said, I want some money. I'm going to New Orleans. Each of them asked permission to get their purses to give him the money he asked for. Not too long after, Gloria comes home. She had been out with her boyfriend and was a little drunk still when she arrived back at the house. She opened the bedroom door where the other girls were being held and screamed when she saw Speck, who was still holding the gun. He forced her to join the girls in the semicircle. Speck started to grab a sheet from one of the bunk beds and started to cut it into strips. Then once he finished, he tied up each girl one by one, hands and feet. So far, there are seven girls in the house. Nine girls live in the townhome total. The other two arrived later. Marianne and Suzanne had been in a chat session and were out late. Once they got home, they opened the door of the back bedroom and saw Speck as he bound and gagged Pamela. They ran down the hall to the larger bedroom and saw the other girls tied up. Speck was right behind them, and before they could even think, he pulled them into another room. He immediately stabbed and strangled the two girls. They desperately fought back, but he was too much. Once he was finished with them, he went into the bathroom and washed up. And then he went back to Pamela in the back bedroom and stabbed her in the heart. Then he washed up again. In the large bedroom, the girls were trying to squeeze under the narrow bunk beds, seeking any kind of hiding and shelter. Speck grabbed Nina and untied her feet. He led her down the hall to the back bedroom and stabbed her in the neck, then proceeded to suffocate her by putting a pillow on her. Cora heard all of this. She said she heard Nina say, ah, and then there was the sound of water. Cora struggled more quickly to get underneath the bunk bed. Speck returned and now took Valentina. He just picked her up. She maybe weighed 100 pounds. He took her to another room and killed her. Again, Cora heard that similar ah sound and then the sound of water. He returned again and took Merlita. Five minutes went by and Cora heard her say masakit, which is Filipino for pain or painful. About 30 minutes go by and Cora hears the sound of water. He came back to grab Patricia and Cora heard him say, Are you the girl in the yellow dress? He took her to the bathroom and punched her in the stomach so hard that it ruptured her liver, and then he strangled her to death. By this time, Gloria had actually fallen asleep because she was still slightly drunk from her date. Speck took off her clothes and raped her. Cora was hidden but could see the entire thing. She closed her eyes and prayed. When she finally opened her eyes again, Speck and Gloria were gone. 
Cora rolled out from under the bunk in the room and then started to drag herself across the floor, knowing that he could come back at any moment, but she wanted to get under the other bunk. She made it and squeezed herself under it and just waited. She waited until she finally got herself to that window ledge where Judy heard her cries. Joe ran up to the townhouse where he had heard the horrible alarm-like cry and saw her. She had been shot in the arm and she was on the couch crying. Joe got more information about the girls and the survivor and went back to his car. He grabbed his two-way radio and called the station. He told them he had news of a mass murder. They told him he would be on at the top of the hour, which was like 6 a.m. at this point. He had only been on the scene for six minutes, and all this happened. In his first report, it said this, Eight student nurses from South Chicago Community Hospital found stabbed to death. I'll have more in my next report. He went back to the townhouse and ran up to the second floor. He checked the rooms again and went back downstairs. This time, though, he noticed another sound, a squishy-type sound as he walked. It turns out that there was so much blood that it began to move from the rooms into the hallway. He left the home again and vomited. That's when the other cops arrived. They saw Joe vomiting and actually made fun of him. They said, hey, Joe, what's the matter? Can't take it? You must be getting old. They went inside to see it for themselves. Guess what? They came out and vomited too. A few hours later, Joe is taken aside by the commander of the citywide homicide unit, Frank Flanagan. He says to Joe, do me a favor. When you do the reports for WCFL, just put that their throats were cut. And naturally, Joe asks why. Do you ladies know why? Maybe be for later on? Like if they want to find out. Like, if the murderer gives them a detail that they didn't Mm. put on the news. Mm -hmm. So, he says, because we're going to get every kook in the city saying they killed these girls. Leave the particulars out. Only the killer will know what really happened to those girls. Joe agreed, and he didn't say any extra details. The first detective on the scene was Jack Walinda, who, fun fact, was related to the Flying Walindas, who were a circus act. That I knew. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, right. In the 40s, the Walindas were in a, um, they were up on the high wire when a fire broke out mm. in a circus tent in Connecticut. Um, and they escaped, but 167 people died. Oh, that sounds like a familiar story. Maybe I've Is it, it the before. one that... No, it's not the one. I know Charles Nelson Riley was at one of those big circus oh. tent fires. I don't know if it was this it was one. It's all the rage. Pretty sure I'm getting this from my favorite murder. I'm pretty sure they do. I'm sure the that they they do something. Or they talk they about did. This. Yeah, because in the thing I read, it just said related to um, the flying Walindas, and I was like, "What is that? A circus act?" Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, he viewed the bodies one by one, noticing every detail he possibly could recognizing that the knots were too professional, that the killer had torn Gloria's shirt off as they came down the stairs, that Susan had been strangled with a white nurse's stocking and stabbed 18 times in her chest and neck, Mary Ann three times, her chest, neck, and eye. Nina had her gown pulled up over her chest, tied with the same professional knots using strips made from the bedsheet. Her stab wounds almost looked ritualistic around her broken neck. Valentina was under a blue cover throat cut. Merlita was thrown over Valentina like a broken doll, stabbed and strangled. Patricia's legs were coming out from the bathroom. Her hands were bound behind her back and she had been strangled with the bedsheet strap, double knotted, her nightgown tossed up and her underwear pulled down. Bloody towels were all over the floor. 
It was the worst crime scene he had ever seen, and he was no fresh-faced detective. Josephine Chan came onto the scene, the director of nursing, and could only properly identify three of the women, Gloria, Patricia, and Pamela. The Cook County coroner, Andrew Toman, released the bodies one by one to be removed from the crime scene. It took eight patrol wagons. Then the house was sealed up and the crime lab started their phase of the investigation. The hunt for speck gets very frustrating and I know I need a lot more coffee. How do you ladies feel? Yeah, yeah I, I think could it's use some more coffee. <laughs> Beans, we're going to make some more coffee and maybe punch a punching bag. Save those final sips. <laughs> and we'll pick this horrible tale back up next Monday. Thank you for joining us for part one of Richard Speck on Morning Murders. Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discussed around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening! Brenna! 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 You have to speak from underneath Amanda, the microphone. The microphone. So far away. <laughs> I feel Amanda enter my veins. Oh my! That's legit. And I don't remember why I came for true crime. End of show. True crime. Goodbye. Flash you guys that help. Yeah. Always. That always helps. All the better. For the record, she didn't do it. She didn't do it. She faked it. Goddamn! I mean that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> You're right. Take me. Pay her. Get the money first. Pay her. Pay me. Money. <coughs> yeah, right. Pay me the CDs. TDs. These DDs. These DDs. These I'm gonna take a drink like of my coffee. Yeah, that was sweet. Mm-hmm. It was like a C cup. A plus in my Marker. book, baby. <laughs> All boobs are great. All boobs. All boobs are great. All boobs are great, no matter your body.
if you got boobs, I love them. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. Amanda Kraut on the clack fan. Kraut <laughs> on the clack fan. Kraut on the clack. <laughs> on the one twos. Oh, no. Ben, 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 I try to write here. Nicole. Okay. Police Nicole. reporter Joel Cummings. Nicolas. <laughs> oh, yeah, hell yeah. Oh, this is the printer of the night. Oh, yeah. He once told the bartender. Bartender? He once told. I told the bartender <laughs> I was in love with you. I told no. the bartender. He once told the bar. He once told the bartender. <laughs> now I feel like the word sounds weird. <laughs> I told the bartender. Bartender. Her stab wounds. Stab wounds. God damn it. Her stab wounds almost looked real. Of course, they looked realistic. It's ritualistic. Is the word I wrote. It's real. Ah. Okay. We're good. <clears throat> Her stab wounds looked almost ritualit. You're doing great. You're killing it. Killing something. Yeah.